Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. Whether you are a student prepping for tests and boards or a CRNA here to earn CEUs, we are glad you've joined us. For more about us, make sure to check us out on Instagram at Core Anesthesia and online at coreanesthesia.com. Welcome back to Core Anesthesia. I'm Cole here with Tanner, and today we want to continue our discussion on open heart anesthesia. So this is going to be part two. If you've not listened to our first talk, I highly encourage you to go back and do that. We are going through the different phases of any open heart procedure, which includes the setup, induction and line placements, incision and sternotomy, vessel harvesting if you're doing a cabbage, pre-cardiac bypass pump phase. And that's where we kind of covered in the first uh, part one of our two-part episode here. And then today, we want to continue with the different phases going now into what's actually going to occur when you're on cardiac pulmonary bypass, and then when you go to post-pump, and then you're closing and transferring. So when you go onto the pump, at this point, the perfusionist has the patient increasing on their flow, and you're going to hear, I'm half flow, I'm three-quarters flow, I'm full flow. And when you get to full flow, you can now put your anesthesia machine on cardiac bypass mode, switch the patient to bag mode, from on your ventilator. So you're basically going to turn your ventilator completely off, turn your alarms off um, for your heart rate, your SpO2, et cetera, because you're not going to be having in a couple of minutes here, a heart rate, you're going to be going asystole. You're not going to be having a waveform on your arterial line. All you're going to see is a map when you're on this pump, because you're not having the heart contracting when you go ahead and get the cardioplegia, which I'll get into in a second here to stop the heart. You're also going to want to turn off your anesthetic gas. And so typically what you do is you just crank your flows all the way down to the lowest amount and then turn off your gas. So at this point, uh, cardioplegia is going to be infused into the patient. Cardioplegia is the idea here of you're going to be infusing a high potassium containing solution into the coronary arteries. And this causes the heart to stop beating with the flood of all that potassium. So this can be done in one of two methods, either an antegrade cardioplegia method or a retrograde. Antigrade is going to be when you cannulate the aortic root with a, a smaller cannulation than what you would the aortic or the venous system. And what this does is that it, that cardioplegia solution can then go right into that aortic root and then go right off into the branches of the coronary arteries. And remember, the goal here is to get that medication, the high potassium containing solution into those coronary arteries. A big contraindication, though, to doing this method is if the patient does have aortic insufficiency, because if you remember with insufficiency of the aortic valve, the blood can go back from the aorta into that left ventricle. And so this cardioplegic solution can then go back into that left ventricle. So in that case, you're going to want to do a retrograde cardioplegia. And this is where you insert the cannula into the coronary sinus. So coronary sinus is what drains from the venous circulation of the heart itself. And then from there, the blood goes into the right atrium from that coronary sinus. And so if you can cannulate that coronary sinus, it's called retrograde because you're kind of going backwards from the venous system back in to the coronary arteries from the venous side. And so that's why they call it retrograde because you're going into the coronary sinus. Next thing they're going to do is put ice in the thoracic cavity just to cool the heart. And then you also let the rest of the body, uh, your core temperature is going to slowly drop and that's okay. That's just going to cause less oxygen consumption. Once the heart is actually stopped and the patient is fully on the bypass pump, this is where the perfusionist will pretty much completely take over managing the blood pressure, or at least they begin taking over the blood pressure. Usually they will try to keep the map around 55 to 70. This is a continual conversation and you'll have back and forth with them. You know, if they need more help, if they're not able to maintain the map in that range, 
then they will communicate with you. And then that is something where you can begin to uh, start a drip. You could start Neo if they are already, usually they start with Neo, get just pushes. And if that's not effective, then oftentimes uh, the norepi is a really good choice for keeping the blood pressure up while you're on pump. Some surgeons, again, like we talked about earlier, like dopamine just for the renal protection, and we can have a different conversation how effective that is or not. But uh, again, keep that in mind that sometimes they'll want dopamine there as well. While you're on pump, this is going to be where the surgeon is doing the bypass graft, is going to correct the bowel, do whatever basically they're doing there inside the heart. This is some of the most fascinating things to watch. You can just peek over the drapes and watch. Uh, exactly what they're doing. I think valves especially are just really, really fascinating to watch how they connect them, how they uh, anchor them inside the heart. And you can actually see just, you know, everything that's going on. I think it's pretty cool. But while you're actually on pump, you you kind of feel like you should be doing something because since, you know, usually the first case is in the morning and since six o'clock that morning, you've been busy, you've been doing lines, you've been doing, you know, a bunch of drips, you've been keeping blood pressure up, you've been giving heparin, you've been doing all these things. And now all of a sudden you go on to pump and it's like nothing, like your responsibility is uh, obviously you're, you're looking at the hemodynamics and you're trying to help the perfusionist. But most of the time at this point, this is when you need to start thinking about coming off pump and starting to think about, okay, what are the things I need to get set up to make that transition go smoothly, but it is a little bit of a breather where you can sit, collect yourself and think about what are next steps. Sometimes this is when you will actually drop your protamine. Some places will have you wait to draw the protamine until you're actually ready to give it. What I like to do is I take the, uh, if I do drop the protamine, I will take the sticker for protamine and wrap it even around the cap of the actual needle. And so in order to actually take off the needle, I have to break that tape. Uh, it's just one more barrier that, uh, you know, you have to cross in order to give that protamine. Obviously don't want to be giving a protamine while they're on pump. As Cole says, no bueno, they will clot off. And, uh, if you do draw it up though, keep in mind that you usually give about one milligram for every hundred units of heparin. So if they give, uh, 38,000 units of heparin, then you're going to be giving 380 milligrams of protamine. This is just crazy to me because today I did a vascular case, like I said, and it's just such a different doses than you're used to doing in other cases. Like today we gave 30 milligrams of protamine. So um, it's a much higher dose that you're giving. And with that, it's going to have a lot more uh, impact on your blood pressure. Something to think about trying to uh, keep them hemodynamically stable. You also want to get your second round of antibiotics ready. So you'll be thinking about uh, giving more antibiotics. You'll also be thinking about what kind of sedative you want to use to take the patient to ICU. So usually we use Presidex. It's really, really nice to uh, take them to ICU on the Presidex. I feel like you can you can titrate it on pretty well. And I also feel like they are able to be recovered a lot faster uh, with that Presidex. You'll want to be checking blood sugars. That's one thing that you will pay attention to. Many times the perfusionist will do this and just tell you exactly what it is, but this is something that you'll be paying attention to because you'll possibly need to give a little bit of insulin or maybe even start a drip. As you start to prepare to come off bypass, the surgeon will start to ask for the patient to be rewarmed. This is kind of your first inclination that you're getting towards the part where you're going to be coming off pump. And so You'll want to be sure that while they're being rewarmed, this is another area that they could have awareness. So this is typically where you'll start to give more Versed. Often I've seen people also give a little more rock here at this point too. 
If you're doing a TEE, you'll uh, analyze the function of the heart at this point to see whatever procedure they've done to make sure that has been effective or has it been changed or uh, just get another look here with the TEE. Um, you'll start, you'll stop the cardioplegia. This will start the heart to start beating. You'll start to get little ticks. Uh, you'll start to get your uh, blood pressure starting to come back a little bit. It'll still be very, very, very wonky, but this is also where you start to um, have really issues for uh, very weird rhythms. And so this is often where you need to shock the patient and they'll use that just with the internal paddles. I've seen that done. Uh, I feel like most of the times when they are coming back and being rewarmed and taking away the cardioplegia that you'll start to see some arrhythmias. So depending on what that rhythm is when the heart does start to come back, you may need to shock the patient. And typically they'll already have sterile into the surgical field, uh, internal paddles that they can place on the heart itself. And this is going to be set just at 10 joules because you're going to be doing an internal shock. And so that's very important that if you're the one that's managing the defibrillator, that you make sure that you are set on just 10 joules once you get open inside of the patient so that you're not giving those those high amounts of joules towards the patient that you would typically do if you were just shocking with pads on the outside of a patient's skin. So at this point, the surgeon may also request the patient to be paced. And so if the rhythm comes back and it's pretty slow, you have a AV block, et cetera, they may want them to have a paced rhythm. And so you will, depending on your facility, um, if you are in charge of setting up that pacer, you would be doing that as well. So just keep that in mind. And as the bypass pump now, the flow is going to be getting lower and lower. You're just going to be communicating when to restart your ventilation. And once you get the okay to do that, uh, typically what I do is I slowly start coming up on my anesthetic gas. At the same time, I'm going to be giving a slow, deep, positive pressure breath to reinflate those lungs. I don't want to just slam it back on the ventilator. You want to do that, that gradual increase kind of pop open those alveoli, uh, make sure the surgeon's okay with it. Um, because if you do peek over the drapes, like I said, the drapes are pretty low. So when I'm squeezing this bag, if you're giving too big of a volume, you'll actually be able to see your lungs pop over into the surgical view. And so it is kind of very interesting to see the lungs inflating and deflating. And I kind of failed to mention this earlier, but throughout the case, especially at the beginning, if you do see your lungs in the surgical field, uh, typically what I do is decrease my tidal volume and increase my respiratory rate just to keep the lungs out of the surgeon's view. But you want to make sure you're maintaining the amount of minute ventilation by going up on the rate if you do do that. Once you get the ventilator back on, everything's going again, again, make sure you turn your alarms on your monitors back on, um, get off of the cardiac bypass mode on your ventilator, and you should be full swing back on to taking care of the oxygenation standpoint of the patient at, at this point. At this point, the surgeon is going to request for protamine to be given. And so what I typically do is give a test dose of one CC, again, after completely verifying that protamine is now supposed to be given because the last thing you want to do is give that prior to when you're supposed to be giving it. But after giving that one CC test dose, you want to watch for a reaction. So if they have an anaphylactic response to this, this can include severe hypotension, pulmonary vasoconstriction, so pulmonary hypertension, bradycardia, and bronchoconstriction. After a few minutes, if you don't see any of this, you can now slowly give the rest of your protamine, and this typically does cause hypotension. It's not necessarily an anaphylactic response if you have this. I pretty much see this all the time, that they're going to become hypotensive. Uh, even the last uh, cabbage I did, we had a patient drop 50 to 60 points whenever we'd push 50 milligrams of protamine, and we had to do multiple rounds of push a couple CCs of protamine, 
at the same time, we would push a hundred of phenylephrine with it just to kind of maintain the blood pressure. And so it's kind of that give and take you work in a little bit of protamine, maybe have to watch what the blood pressure does, give them a little push of something, et cetera. What is nice at this point is the perfusionist might be giving you some blood from the cell saver. So I like to start this and have that running in to kind of help keep my pressure high as I'm pushing in this protamine. Sometimes protamine can be your friend. If you have a patient that comes back and they're hypertensive when you come off the pump, you can just slam that thing in and kind of helps lower your blood pressure. And more as Tanner said earlier, Cleverprex is a good use in this case to slowly bring that pressure back down. Yeah, this will be something that you'll want to be communicating with the surgeon because he'll have a very specific blood pressure in mind that he wants to have. You don't want it too low where you're not perfusing, but you don't want it too high where you're at risk of damaging the graft that they just placed. And so it's very important that you communicate. And like Cole said, sometimes this protamine can be your friend. I had one where they were in like the 140s, 150s, and he was, you know, ticked that the blood pressure was so high. And so we were giving the protamine a lot faster but you need to have a good feel for it because like Cole said, usually when you're giving the protamine, you'll start to give a little bit of Neo with it just because you'll want to counteract those hypotensive effects. But I mean, we were down quickly into like 60 systolically. So, I mean, it's like, then you're giving norepi pushes or epi pushes and it's like, it can be a roller coaster. So it's just very important that you know that you can have these massive swings with uh, protamine. So once your protamine is in, in about three to five minutes, you're going to recheck an ACT and you want to make sure it's back down to baseline. Thing you need to be careful of here is if you still have cell saver left to give, it's not necessarily going to be accurate because that blood and the cell saver is going to be heparinized still. And so you may get a baseline value for your ACT, but if you still have 300 cc's of cell saver to give, it's going to add heparinized blood back into your systemic circulation. And so you actually see that ACT go back up a little bit later. Um, so typically if you're close to baseline or even slightly higher, we'll typically give another 50 milligrams of protamine just because we're anticipating when the rest of that cell saver is in that, that ACT will actually rise more than what I currently got the value to be at. So hopefully that makes sense. At this point at our facility, we start another Amacar drip. And so the key for me is once the protamine's in, now I can switch gears to give my second dose of antibiotic, switch out my driving fluid for Amacar and let that just run in as I take them to the ICU. And the opinion on the patient's central venous pressure, if I feel like they need more volume, uh, at this point, I like to give albumin. And so you can just start with either 12.5 grams, you can do 25, and, and just see how it goes from there. And it also depends on how much cell saver you're going to be given to the patient as well. But just keep in mind that you can use albumin in this case. Right. Many times if you're struggling with that hypotension afterwards, you know they really probably need volume. And so giving them albumin, or like Cole said, all of that cell saver back to them usually can help kind of uh, fix a lot of those hypotensive issues that you're having at this point. At this point, the surgical team is going to be closing and suturing. And so this is where you're going to start trying to prepare for your transition to the ICU. And this is often something that you, you know, is already kind of tricky when you are transferring a patient just because you have a few lines and you want to make sure everything is organized. But this is where it's especially important with all of your drips, all of your pumps, all of your lines. This is a task that you need to get started early so that you can transition them to the other bed uh, effectively, safely, keeping all of your lines intact. And uh, this is something that you can start doing here as you've already got your antibiotic, you've already got your Amicar, you've already got your Presidex running, all of those things are set. Now you can start thinking about transitioning them 
over to a different bed. And so often this is where I start to break down my fluid warmer, get that out of my blood tubing line. And so I have one less thing there. Sometimes we even take down that whole fluid. It just depends on uh, what you're comfortable with. But if you think you only need one bag of fluid going to ICU, you could take down that line completely. You don't need to uh, worry about reversing these patients. You can um, obviously keep them on the Presidex strip and you don't need to worry about getting any kind of reversal in there. Uh, whatever muscle relaxant they have on board is fine as they go to the ICU. You can keep on your agent uh, until you're leaving the room so you don't have to worry about emergence. Uh, and again, this is just important as you move uh, over to the other bed, you think about having all your lines very organized. What I like to do is have everything on the pole to my left. And so if we're moving from the patient from the OR table to the bed on the left, I already have everything, even if it's going to the, like their right hand or if their central lines on the right side, I like to have my bags and everything and my pumps all the way on the left on the pole that I'm going to be taking to ICU. And then as I am getting ready to transition them from our bed to the other bed, you disconnect them from your circuit. And I like to tuck those lines inside my arm and then wrap my hands kind of around the back of their head. And so if the lines are going to pull, they're going to pull on my arm first before they're going to pull on anything on the patient. So I just have everything organized, ready to go so that we can move quickly and move safely. And you're not going to pull anything or uh, disconnect anything. As you're going to transport, you'll either take a vent with you, or many times you'll just use an AMBU bag as you go to ICU. Uh, you'll still have all of your drips running or at least connected. You'll have your syringes of the different medications with you. And so you can hand those off, or if you need to use them, you have them. This is not the time that you want to be unprepared. You want to have everything that you would need to have in the event that something would come up, or you'd have some type of crisis or event in the hallway or as you're going to ICU. So that wraps us up for part two of our episodes on open heart procedures. Hopefully this was a educational two episodes for you in terms of either a, just a review if you've already done these procedures, but two, if you're going to be heading into them pretty soon, really, like we said at the beginning of the first episode, once you go through one or two of them, you really get a good idea of how the subsequent cases that you do are going to go given that nothing you know, astray will happen, but you should be prepared for any of those type of situations that do occur, kind of read up on them, etc. But we really wanted to do here was just go through the basic setup all the way through transferring the patient to the ICU. Um, so again, hopefully this was a big help for you guys and that uh, it makes you more prepared when you go for your first day of your cardiac rotation.